0: Chapter Ten of Twelve Good Musicians from John Bull to Henry Purcell. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Twelve Good Musicians from John Bull to Henry Purcell by Frederick Bridge. Pelham Humphrey, 1647. To 1674. We have all heard of single speech Hamilton, a member of parliament who, it is said, made a single speech and by it achieved lasting fame. As a matter of history, Hamilton made other speeches, but it was by the first that he earned his well known cognomen. And we have a somewhat similar example in connection with a celebrated musician, John Jenkins. Born in 1592, he lived until 1678, and wrote, as North expresses it, horse loads of music. He was most prolific and most celebrated, and yet until a few years ago, when I revived many of his compositions, dialogues, fancy for strings, and Latin motets, not a note of his music was heard anywhere save one little piece, but this was sung in every school where vocal music was taught. It is the charming little round, a boat, a boat, haste to the ferry. The subject of our present consideration is another example of the same fate. Pelham Humphrey, composer of the Grand Chant, is about all people know of him. This so-called Grand Chant is known and sung in every Protestant church in the world. Humphrey is, however, a worthy member of the band of musicians whose work I am following and we'll see what else he did besides writing the Grand chant. Born in 1647, he is said to have been a nephew of Colonel John Humphrey, Bradshaw's sword-bearer. From the arms which were on his tomb, we can learn a little of his family and forebears. These arms, I regret to say, had long since been obliterated. In fact, they had gone in Sir John Hawkins' time, together with the epitaph, and at the present time, the exact position of the grave can only be a matter of conjecture. But what was on it has been preserved to us in a valuable old work. Keeps Monumenta, West 1682. In this work, a description is given of the armorial bearings. And by them, we can trace him to an old Northamptonshire stock. The family is mentioned as being settled in the country in the visitation of Northampton of 1564, but had disappeared from it before the next visitation some years later. We know nothing of Pelham Humphrey's life until 1660, the year of the Restoration, when we find him, at the age of thirteen, entered as one of the first set of children of the reconstructed Chapel Royal Choir under Henry Cook. Generally known as Captain Cook, who having fought in the civil war, obtained his captain's commission as early in the struggle as sixteen forty two, and retained his military title for the rest of his life. While at the Chapel Royal, Humphrey displayed signs of that precocity which so often shows itself in the musical genius. He began composition while yet a boy, and in sixteen sixty four we find the words of no fewer than Five of his anthems published in Clifford's Divine Services and Anthems. A reference to one of these anthems is in the Diary of Samuel Pepys, which contains, by the way, several interesting references to Humphrey's career. Under date November twenty second, sixteen sixty three, we find At chapel I had room in the Privy Seal pew with other gentlemen, and there heard Dr. Lilligrew preach the anthem was good after sermon being the fifty-first psalm made for five voices by one of captain cook's boys pretty boy and they say there are four or five of them that can do as much and here i first perceived that the king is a little musical and kept good time with his hand all along the anthem now that anthem was written by a choir-boy in the royal chapel but it is a remarkable fact as pepys says That he was not the only boy composer in the same choir and at the same time. Captain Cook appears to have been rarely fortunate in having in his newly formed choral body a set of phenomenally gifted boys, and doubtless no small credit is due to the loyal and gallant musician for the skill and care he must have devoted to their training. Captain Cook must have been a clever teacher and a still cleverer selector of boys for his choir. In this brilliant little school he gathered round him, including such names as Humphrey, Blow, and Purcell, shines out like a beacon light in our musical world. A curious and interesting fact bearing upon this came to my knowledge quite lately. A thesis for a doctor's degree in the University of Paris in 1912 was on the subject of Captain Cook's choir boys, and it was a clever yet concise account of the work done by these three pupils of Cook, Humphrey, Blow, and Purcell. English music seems to be looking up when we find a period of our musical history and three of our past great musicians taken as the subject for a thesis in a foreign university. The same year that witnessed the production of this anthem was an all-important one, not only for Humphrey, but also for English art. On leaving the Royal Choir, Charles II sent him abroad to continue his musical studies. The cost of the trip was paid out of the Secret Service Fund, and was expended in the following way. 1664. To defray the charge of his journey into France and Italy, 200 pounds. In the following two years, also, he was granted 100 pounds and 150 pounds, respectively most of the time humphrey spent abroad was passed in paris with j b lully an italian by birth but a frenchman by adoption the most celebrated dramatic musical composer of his day he wrote many operas in the most varied styles both grave and gay was the composer of a good deal of sacred music was also a reformer in opera writing he introduced the accompanying recitative in place of the Italian recitative secco, making many changes in the ballets. Of still more importance was his development of the overture, by which service he cannot be too highly valued. It is very probable that the instruction given by Lully to Humphrey was less by precept than by example. The pupil learned with eager ears to his master's music and doubtless often took part in the performance of it under this influence the influence of the greatest master of dramatic music of his time it is not surprising that the already precocious genius of the young englishman quickened and that he returned to his native country with a different conception of his art another world had been opened up to him whose earliest instruction had necessarily been chiefly confined to the ecclesiastical side of it before his return to england he had been appointed a gentleman of the chapel royal in the place of one thomas hazard january sixteen sixty seven and he was duly sworn in the october following a glance at pepys diary under dates november first and fifteenth sixteen sixty seven gives us that shrewd observer's opinion of our hero as he appears fresh from his continental trip november first sixteen sixty seven to chapel and heard a fine anthem made by pelham who has come over the entry however of a fortnight later is of more interest as apparently being mr peeps first personal encounter with him since his return november fifteenth sixteen sixty seven home and there i find as i expected mr caesar and little pelham humphrey lately returned from france and is an absolute monsieur as full of form and confidence and vanity and disparages everything and everybody's skill but his own but to hear how he laughs at all the king's music here as blagrave and others that they cannot keep time nor tune nor understand anything and that griebus the frenchman the king's master of the music, how he understands nothing, nor can play on any instrument, and so cannot compose, and that he will give him a lift out of his place, and that he and the king are mighty great. I had a good dinner for them, a venison pasty, and some fowl, and after dinner we did play, he on the theorbo, Mr. Caesar on the French flute, and I on the viol, but made but mean music nor do I see that this Frenchman do so much wonders on the Theorbo, but without question he is a good musician, but his vanity do offend me. Gravis, or rather Grebu was the king's master of the music. He displaced Bannister, who was dismissed, according to the historians, because he championed English violinists and said he preferred them to Frenchmen. He may have said this, but the real cause of his dismissal was that he kept back the money which he ought to have paid to the private band. King Charles has often been blamed for dismissing Bannister on account of his patriotic sentiments and defense of English players, but this charge is not true. Returning to Mr. Pepys for a record of his day's doings, November 16, 1667, we find a very interesting reference to Humphrey and a somewhat scathing criticism. From the diarist, sixteen sixty seven, november sixteenth, to Whitehall, where there is to be a performance of music of Pelham's before the king. The company not come, but I did go into the music room, where Captain Cook and many others, and here I did hear the best and the smallest organ go that ever I saw in my life, and such as one as by the grace of God I will have the next year, if I continue in this condition whatever it cost me. Mr. Pepys then records a short walk and talk with Mr. Gregory, returning to Whitehall, and there got into the theatre room, and there heard both the vocal and instrumental music, where the little fellow, Pelham Humphrey, stood keeping time, but for my part I see no great matter, but quite the contrary in both sorts of music. The composition, I believe, is very good, but no more of delightfulness to the ear or understanding, but what is very ordinary. In addition to being a composer, Humphrey was an accomplished lutenist, and in the state papers for the year 1668, under date January 20th, we find a promotion of his in the royal service. The record runs as follows. January 20th, 1668, Warrant to pay Pelham Humphreys, Music in Ordinary on the Lute, in place of Nicholas Sawyer, deceased, forty pounds yearly, and sixteen pounds two shillings sixpence for livery. On May twenty-ninth of the same year Mr. Peeps again refers to him. May twenty-ninth, sixteen sixty-eight. Home, Whither by agreement, by and by comes Mercer and Gayhead, and two gentlemen with them, Mr. Monteith and Pelham the former a swaggering young handsome gentleman, the latter a sober citizen merchant. Both sing, and the latter with great skill, the other no skill, but a good voice and a good bass, but used to tavern tunes. And so I spent all this evening till eleven at night singing with them, till I was tired of them, because of the swaggering fellow, though the girl, Mercer, did mightily commend him before me. Footnote. I cannot help thinking Peeps, met Pelham as the swaggering young handsome gentleman, and Monteith as the sober citizen merchant. and a footnote. Later in the year, July, another reference is made in the diary. July eleventh, sixteen 1668. So home it being almost night. Mr. Peeps had been at an espinet at Deptford, and there find in the garden Pelling, who hath brought Tempest, Wallington, and Pelham to sing, and there had most excellent music late in the dark with great pleasure. Humphrey's sacred music is a clear evidence of his French experience. He puts symphonies for strings, and is dramatic at times, and often somewhat light. An anthem of Praise the Lord is a good example of the latter tendency. There are two short bass solos, one to the words sing praises lustily, which is almost like the song of a jovial sailor. It is in triple time, and is the sort of thing King Charles would certainly have beaten time to with his hand, all along the anthem, in Pepys' words. The bass solo in the anthem he wrote when a boy, and before his French training, is in a quite different style. It might have been written by any of our good cathedral writers, such as Locke, or Blow, or even Purcell. In addition to his sacred works, Humphrey wrote three odes and many songs. These latter fall under the critical notice of Dr. Burney, who refers to them, I think, rather unfairly and harshly. Speaking of a collection called Choice Songs and Heirs, Burney says, among these songs, to the number of near fifty, there is not one air that is either ingenious, graceful, cheerful, or solemn an insipid languor or vulgar pertness pervades the whole from pelham humphrey whose church music is so excellent i own i expect it to find originality or merit of some kind or other but his songs are quite on the level with the rest Burney's remarks are not only spiteful but untrue to mention only one song humphrey's setting of where the Bee sucks which he wrote for dryden and devonet's altered version of the tempest the oldest setting but one which we possess, is charming, both as regards melody and harmony. The first part is in the minor key, for which Humphrey seems like Purcell to have a weakness. There is an effective change to the tonic major at Merrily, Merrily Shall I Live Now, with a most striking and delicious drop of a seventh. I expect Burney regarded this as a crudity. To me the song seems one of the best of the time, Humphrey went on adding to his honors, on January twenty-fourth, 1672, he was elected one of the wardens of the Corporation for Regulating the Art and Science of Music, and in July of the same year his old master, Captain Cook, died, his death being accelerated, so Antony Wood tells us, by chagrin at finding himself getting supplanted by his old pupil. This I do not believe. Cook would have had a soul above such foibles, and had too many successful pupils to be jealous of poor little Humphrey. However, this may be, Humphrey succeeded him as master of the children of the Chapel Royal, and later, jointly with Thomas Purcell, he was appointed composer in ordinary for the violins to His Majesty. It was in this year, sixteen seventy two, that he wrote a charming little song called Wherever I Am and Whatever I Do. It was written for Dryden's Conquest of Granada, produced in that year. Nothing of any importance is chronicled of him for the last two years of his all-too-short life. He died at Windsor on July thirteenth, 1674, and was buried in the cloisters of Westminster Abbey near the southeast door. His last will and testament, witnessed by his old schoolfellow, Dr. Blow, is interesting. April the 23rd. 74. Be it known to all people, whomsoever it may concern, that I leave my dear wife, my sole executress and mistress of all I have in the world, after those few debts I owe are paid. I only desire that three legacies may be given, that is to say, to my cousin Betty Jelfry, to Mr. Blow, and to Bessie Gill, each of them twenty shillings, to buy them rings. Pelham Humphrey 30. JULY 1674 Which day appeared personally John Blow of Westminster made oath that he was present when Mr. Pelham Humphrey wrote the above written writing containing his last will and testament, and he, the said Mr. Pelham Humphrey, being of perfect mind and sound memory, published and declared the same for his last will and testament. JOHN BLOW 30. JULY seventy four. Proof 30 July, 1674, by Catherine Humphrey, Relict and Sole Executress Humphrey's life brief, though it was, must be regarded as a turning point in our arts history, not alone by his own compositions, but by the infusion of his influence into the greater Purcell. He was not only Purcell's master at the Chapel Royal, but actually composed an anthem, Jointly with Purcell, called by the waters of Babylon. In Boyce's opinion, he was the first of our ecclesiastical composers who had the least idea of musical pathos and expression of the words. But this is an exaggeration. This great advance in our music was carried on by the immortal Purcell, who as a choir boy under Humphrey was no doubt an eager listener to the new effects which his master introduced. The pupil is so great, one is in danger of forgetting the master. At least here we have endeavored to do some justice to the short-lived genius Pelham Humphrey. End of chapter 10